Welcome. I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today's guest, columnist Michael Harriet, says, For too long, we have refused to acknowledge that American history is white history. His new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America, removes what he calls white sugarcoating and puts the experiences and perspectives of black Americans squarely at the center. He writes that the origin story of African people in America does not begin in 1619, nor does it begin with slaves. In fact, the people who were kidnapped, loaded onto ships, transported across the ocean, and forced into a lifetime of human bondage were not slaves. They were doctors, priests, children, wives, and warriors who were coerced into this racialized forced labor system through violence or the threat of violence. That they survived this legal, state-sanctioned act of collective terrorism is a testament to their strength. But they didn't just survive. With the jagged fragments of their homeland stowed away inside their unerasable memories, they crafted a new world that not only sustained them, but also transformed this pilfered property into a place that even the white men would call home. Michael Harriet joins us to talk about the importance of challenging white narratives and centering black stories, especially as Republican lawmakers strip black history or try to strip black history from school curricula and remove black authors from school shelves. Michael Harriet is a journalist, author and cultural critic. His new book is called Black AF History, the unwhitewashed story of America. He's a columnist for The Guardian and TheGrio.com. In his latest piece for The Grio, he writes that the fur over diversity, equity, and inclusion is just the latest example of the historical phenomenon known as white lash. Hi, Michael. Congratulations on this great book, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I really loved the book. You did so much research and brought out so many incredible stories. Can you first tell us what sparked this book? Well, so I was, uh, you know, I've always been a student of history and I actually proposed, I taught a class for years called, uh, race as an economic construct. I, uh, my, I have a master's degree in, in macroeconomics and, 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 uh, international business. And so I taught a class on the college level called race as an economic construct and, uh, pitched a book about that and, Publishers loved the idea, but they also all asked me, well, what about that history thing you do on social media and in your writing? Have you ever thought about doing a book on that? And so that's how this book came about. We switched the, uh, we switched the order of the books because it was funny at the time that I pitched the book, the first book, they didn't think that anyone would know kind of the basis of the book because it was about this arcane subject no one had ever heard of called critical race theory. And so they said, well, let's, let's do that one second because no one's ever heard of critical race theory. So, uh, it's a funny story now, but that's how the book came about. Going back into your family's history, I mean, South Carolina plays such an important role in your book. And it's so, you're so lucky to have so much history in your family home. It just got me thinking about home and when do we move into a home and what is the history of that home? You write about how in 1952, James and Marvell Harriet built a house for their eight children in Hartsville, South Carolina, a scant 22 miles from the forced labor camp where James S. Bradley enslaved 253 human beings, including Marvell's great-grandfather, Irvin. The Harriet House had four bedrooms, a bathroom, a dining room, and a living room you could enter only if you were entertaining company, had obtained written and verbal permission, or if someone who had the Holy Ghost died. But the best room in the house was the middle room. Before we talk about the importance of the middle room and what it was, can you just tell us a bit about your family home? My family home, uh, again, it was built uh, in Hearts, in a little town called Hartsville, South Carolina, by my grandfather, uh, he finished it the week his youngest daughter was born. So they were able to move her into the new home that they built. It's a, a, it seemed large to me when I was growing up, but it was a small four bedroom center block home. And it, my family still lives there to this day. It's kind of my family homestead. 
And it was the place where I, because I was homeschooled, it was not just my home. It was my schoolhouse. It was my recreation center. It was my library. So, so it holds a special meaning for me because it was that, that from that perspective, which I saw the world. And the middle room is so interesting because this is where there were a huge, just so many books on every subject. There were television shows, recordings. Uh, you were homeschooled, and the middle room sounds like it was a critical resource in your education. Can can you talk about that middle room and how it really shaped your worldview? Yes, I think today we would call it a den, but it was like we had a floor model TV in there. And that and a couch. And then aside from that, it was just lined with these oak shelves that everyone from my family deposited their books on. So, you know, I, I read Soul of the Robot and then was looking for something else to read and figured W.E.B. Du Bois's Soul of the Soul of the Souls of Black Folks would be like something like that. Uh, so my my education and that middle room played a lot into my education because my education was primarily self-directed and it and I was a voracious reader that it allowed me to explore so many subjects and view the world in so many different ways without someone ingraining their thoughts or their perspectives into my head. You're really lucky in many ways because for those of us who went to school, public school, uh, if our families didn't talk about our past, depending on obviously our background, a lot of us really didn't learn that much about our background. Or as you say, we learned a very whitewashed version of history. And that's definitely not the case for your childhood. No, I think it was because my family was very adamant about history. Um, my my aunt, Janie, uh, founded South Carolina's uh, state organization to preserve black history in the state where black history is most important, in my opinion. Uh, and she did it, uh, you know, not necessarily to do it as an altruistic version. She was actually trying to uh, save a closed down black high school from Walmart. And she lobbied the government to save it. So save it. So it's always been important to my, my family. Uh, and, and then part of it was just like absorbing the history from the stories that were told. We would go back to uh, about 20 miles from my house where my family still lived on the land that they were enslaved on. And we would just sit there and listen to my family members tell stories. And so some of it, I picked up, you know, naturally and organically. And so it wasn't necessarily that they sat me down and say, hey, history has to be important to you. I just lived in a family with, that displayed that importance every day. You credit so much of who you are to your mom. And you write that when you were a child, your mom chose to homeschool you and your sisters. As an adult, she told you that your early homeschool education was an experiment due to her belief that a, quote, black child cannot fully realize their humanity in the presence of whiteness. Can you talk more about that? And then just to think about your history, your family's history, and how much that influenced your mom and what she wanted you to learn about the world. Well, it's interesting because I didn't, I never heard that quote until I sat down with her and interviewed her like a journalist hmm. for this book and asked her that question. I'd never even asked her that question before. And so that's where that quote came from. But we see that actually in the world today, you know, there are studies that show that children, black children in elementary school are punished um, more harshly than white children who commit the same, you know, infractions or offenses. We see that there was a study that showed that um, teachers, they just 
They just study the eyes of teachers when they're teaching and they show that they, they pay more attention to the black kids and to how they're disciplined and to discipline them. We, we see studies that show that like they just put different names, black sounding names versus white sounding names on tests. And they found that the teachers judged the black sounding names more harshly. Um, they graded the, the tests of the black uh, sounding names more harshly. So, it's, it, you know, it's, it was a belief of my mother, but we see it in research that, you know, attending school, um, in, in America and attending an education system that was primarily formed for the benefit of, of white students, um, has an effect on you. And I think, and I, I really thank my mother for seeing that. And I think it was valuable in, you know, helping me gain a perspective of America that wasn't kind of uh, formed by someone else. You know, hearing you talk about all of these studies and research, just to think about what that is doing to black children and children of color today. Have you been able to read from your book or go speak to young students about the work you do? And, and if so, what have those experiences been like? I think I have been able to read to young students uh, on the K through 12 level. And like I literally last night I was uh, at Edward Waters College, a historically black college in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, talking to those students. And, you know, some of it's it's amazing to me because I think I took for granted my education and how you know, most people learn history because, again, being homeschooled, not only did I learn history differently, but I didn't have a perspective on how other people learned history. Right. So it was only until I had children that I realized, oh, they learn about this great George Washington and all of the founding fathers. And then only later on do they learn about slavery and it's hard to comport those two things. And, and, and so it helped me gain an understanding of how people learn history. And I think that, you know, what people have been telling me about this book, both young and old is that there is so much that they don't know that, and, and that has been whitewashed and that they have to unlearn about history. Right. Well, to your point, I mean, we hear about slave revolts, but you really go into detail. Can you talk about the research involved in this? Because you bring out stories that I'm guessing a lot of people have really never heard about before. Right. And and, and many of those stories, uh, what I did is I looked at contemporaneous accounts of those stories. So, you know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, I didn't just read about someone telling the story. I read what people were saying at that time. I, I poured through research. I mean, through through old newspapers, diaries, and 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 accounts, and and even even legislative accounts. It's it's interesting that you know, in the le- in state legislators, they would legislatures they would just have someone record accounts of these uh, slave revolts, and the research was fascinating. Because it gave you an insight, not just on that particular revolt, but how how usual it was, how normal it was for for society to say, hey, because of this fear, let's enact this brutality against all the black people. It wasn't necessarily just to curb that particular slave revolt, but it was to prevent the future, prevent black people from even considering a form of resistance. And we'll talk about some of those examples on today's show. What about black media when you did research and read black media? What stood out for you there? Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to not just give the perspective of like the the natural white perspective that we always learn, but to give the perspective of black people. And what what was interesting about, um, you know, pouring through sources from black media, black newspapers and contemporaneous accounts was that often you'd run into a roadblock because what you discover is that. For instance, the Memphis Free, uh, the Memphis, the newspaper, the black newspaper in Memphis, the Memphis Free Reader, right? Um, where Ida B. Wells wrote for most of her career. Well, 
no surviving copies existed because it was burned by a white mob. And I'd run into those two sentences quite often. No surviving copies exist burned by a white mob. And so that was a way that our history was erased. And like now the burning by a white mob is done through the legislature, right? It's done through these anti-CRT laws and these anti-woke laws that we see popping up in Florida and around the country. And, you know, it is the same goal, right? It, It is to erase that history and, and to whitewash the past. And I think that, you know, it was enlightening to me and it made me look at what is going on today differently. And as part of a long arc of that goal to erase black people's past. What did you come up with given that many Republican politicians are on a mission to whitewash history even more than it already is to take black authors off of bookshelves. They're obsessed with DEI. Given that you were involved in writing this book and doing this extensive research as all of this was happening, what do you, what do you come up with? What explains all of this? Well, I think it's a couple of things, right? Like it is, you know, part of that past that involves like the daughters of the Confederacy until now, like the daughters of the Confederacy in the early 1900s and their efforts, their successful efforts to whitewash history and to recast the Civil War. We see the same thing with the daughters of, of with the, the moms for liberty now and groups like that who are taking over school boards. And it's it's part of an effort to whitewash the past. But a lot of it is I don't contribute to ma- attribute to malice. I, I feel like that because our history has been so whitewashed and because so many people have learned what are frankly lies, right? But if you think about it, if your third grade teacher tells you a lie and then it's reiterated by your fourth grade teacher and your fifth grade teacher, and when you hear the truth, you might think that the truth is a lie and say, well, we can't have that in our schools because I learned and my colleagues learned and my mama learned and my daughters learned all of these lies that we have cast as American history. And so we need to outlaw what we think are lies when it is actually the truth, because they can't realize that they have been ingesting lies for generations. Today, we're spending the hour with Michael Harriet. We're discussing his new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. He removes the white sugar coating of U.S. history and puts the experiences and perspectives of black Americans squarely at the center. If you have any questions or comments for Michael about his book and all the research he did, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a story about black history that is not included in what you learned in school, and what are your thoughts about where we are today? On the one hand, there's amazing books coming out like Michael Harriet's Black AF History. In fact, it's hard to even keep up. And then at the same time, we're seeing ridiculous book bans uh, across the country and you know, going after what is taught in schools. So what are your thoughts about this moment we're in? You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Before we dive in and and talk about the stories that you uncovered, because they're so fascinating. I just want to ask one more question about all of this. You had a conversation with Tracy Thomas, host of the Stacks podcast. She says your book is not about American history or the history of black people in America. It's about how black people see and experience America. Can you talk about that and elaborate on that? Yeah. So I think a lot of times uh, when we talk about American history or black history, we see America, we talk about American history from a white perspective and we talk about black history from the perspective of black people. There are a lot of books about black history from the perspective of black people. There aren't a lot of books about America and American history from the perspective of black people. You know, um, if you're going to write about, you know, uh, Grover Cleveland, you, well, you know, 
to black people, it was just another guy who was becoming president. They were too busy building communities and institutions. And so to look at American history from the perspective of black people, I think it's interesting because it's not, it's a different perspective. One of the things that I did that, uh, you know, it kind of upset some people, but it was kind of enlightening to some people, right? So when we learn about the French colonists and the English settlers, right? And the pilgrims, right? That gives them a political and a religious background. And all of the black people are just African. Right. Like we don't talk about what part of Africa they came from, what kingdom, what skills they brought here with them. Well, I wanted to do that. But if you're going to do that in the context of how America teaches history from the black perspective, then all of the English and the French and the Dutch and the German settlers, they were just white people to the black people. Right. Like they were. When you the reverse engineered Af, like the Africans, right? Like they didn't you the black people didn't care about their backgrounds. All they knew is what they saw. So in in this book, a lot of times I refer to the English as just white people and the Dutch as just white people because I'm writing from that black perspective. I have to say, I loved this part of the book. I so appreciated how you laid this out. You write. In most history books, America is colonized by European settlers. In chronicling this nation's past, historians recognize that the English, Dutch, Spanish, and French colonists are human beings with, as you say, different backstories, cultures, and motivations. We know the political incentives, economic concerns, and social mores that explain away the theft, the violence, and the genocide. The people and cultures whose blood water the stolen landscapes are usually dehumanized by simply remaining anonymous. The stolen Africans are not Akan or Nyamwezi. They're just slaves. The various indigenous nations who were extinguished are never Ocheti, Shakoin, or even Iroquois. They're just Indians or most Native Americans. Yet somehow the states and colonies that replace them have borders, legislatures, and distinguishable features. I got to say, Michael, my grandmother was Pomo. My grandfather was Paiute. And I just love how you put this. And I don't, I think people, they might think about this in some ways because we hear at least some tribes, you hear about, um, you know, the Ohlone here in the Bay Area. Some tribes are, are, are well known to people, but they're, they definitely do not know many, many, they probably can't even name 10 different tribes and definitely not stolen Africans that are Akan or Nyamwezi. I think this is such an important point. Yeah, I, I think so too, because it not just turns the perspective around and, and gives you a different perspective, but it also informs you, right? Like you can't understand the history of rice and the rice culture in South Carolina and America, America's first edible cash crop, unless you know that they went to a specific place that had horticulturalists and agricultural engineers that knew this particular, that had this particular skill and knew this particular thing. You can't understand, for instance, like, like we talk about the, 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 animosity between the natives and the English settlers. Well, you have to understand that Wahun Sinica was seen as basically the president of a United States. He, he was president of a group of individual autonomous, what we call tribes, but they were kingdoms, mm. right? And to under, when you look at that, then you understand, well, he was just a leader who was protecting his people, and we don't ever talk about it from that perspective. Right. The, the section on rice and why South Carolina became the number one exporter of rice was so interesting, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're going to take a quick break. Today we're joined by Michael Harriet. He is a columnist for The Guardian and The Griot, and he's out with a new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. The book illustrates the importance of challenging white narratives and centering black stories. This is your call. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we are spending the hour with Michael Harriet. We're talking about his new book, Black AF History, the story of the unwhitewashed story of America. 
He removes the white sugar coating of U.S. history and puts the experiences and perspectives of black Americans squarely at the center. And if you'd like to join us, if you have a story to share, if you have a question for Michael Harriet, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. So let's talk about rice, but first let's put South Carolina in perspective here because you write that centuries after pharaohs, emperors, czars, khans, kings all took turns ruling the disparate, sometimes simultaneously existing regimes that historians then and now refer to as the world ruling empires, a brand new dynasty emerged in South Carolina. You say that understanding the history and legacy of African Americans and America and itself, there needs to be a major focus on South Carolina. It stands as the capital of the known world. Tell us more about that. Well, one of the things that I've always been adamant about is that if there is such a thing as black America, then South Carolina is, is its capital. About 40% of all enslaved people imported to the United States came through South Carolina. And if you include the the people who at least spent time in South Carolina, it's up to 90%. So it is the capital of America and not just the people, but the laws that we know that govern the enslaved, the laws that we know that, you know, the black codes, all of those emerged from the resistance of black people in South Carolina. So it's important to understand South Carolina, how it contributed to this national economy. You know, we talk about, when we learn about regular U.S. history, we start in Boston and in Philadelphia. But if we're going to learn about black history, we have to start in South Carolina. And if you're going to learn about American history, quite frankly, we talk about those places in the Northeast. But before America became America when it was in the uh, colony, when, when there was 13 different colonies, South Carolina's residents, the white residents, had the highest per capita income. It was the wealth of America, and it largely came from enslaving humans. We should also mention John Locke. Uh, co-authored the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina. He's known as the, quote, father of liberalism. He enumerated the laws and rules for Carolina's organizing document, including a clause that would come to forever be known as Article 110, which stated every free man of Carolina shall have the absolute power and authority over his slaves of what opinion or religion soever. Carolina's white supremacy was baked into the social structure as one of the colony's founding principles and slavery proliferated. Right. And and that's important to know because, you know, we talk about 1619 and, and when the first English settlers uh, brought slaves to America, bought enslaved Africans to America. But in South Carolina, all of the, the institutions and the laws that we know that govern the enslaved, they came from South Carolina. South Carolina imported more enslaved people before this, for, before the American Revolution than all of the other colonies combined. So that's why South Carolina has such a special place in black history. And why is that? Why were so many slaves brought to South Carolina? Well, first of all, it was because of the the rice. You know, um, there was tobacco before rice, before rice as kind of a cash crop, which enslaved people from the Caribbean knew how to grow. But tobacco can't sustain you, right? It was the tobacco was was picked and shipped off to Europe. And, and, you know, made the colonists rich. But the thing that sustained America, the colonies at first was was rice. And it was discovered by accident when the people in South Carolina couldn't figure out why their enslaved people weren't starving. And they realized they had been growing rice. Well, they went to what they call the rice coast uh, or the gold coast of Africa and specifically enslaved people who knew how to grow and how to to have the agricultural expertise to build this rice growing empire that gave America its first edible cash crop and sustained this country. 
This section of the book was so interesting. You write that since the beginning of this people stealing project, the slave system relied mostly on black males who had the muscle to perform laborious tasks. And so, like in most slave societies, men greatly outnumbered women in the colonies. But in the South Carolina colonies, the male to female ratio would eventually reach a one to one ratio after plantation owners realized that African women were the ones who possessed the engineering and agricultural knowledge necessary to grow what would become known as Carolina gold. Wow. What happened when they realized that? Well, there were a couple of consequences. One of the things uh, that is rarely talked about is that, you know, before South Carolina, the slave trade was largely male uh, oriented. Right. And, uh, you know, even the ones that were ex- imported because of their skills were brought here for blacksmithing and, and, and skills like that. But when South Carolina began importing women, not only did it change the demographics of the people who were enslaved, right? But then it also started a new project where they could have, for lack of a better word, homegrown enslaved people, right? Um, so they could, you know, a, a new industry emerged of, of intra colony slave trading, right? Where they could mate slaves where, so, so, that's where the majority of African Americans who were enslaved in South Carolina, they, they began having children and producing progeny that could further this project that we call America. You write, every time these rice plantation owners imported more Africans, their empire expanded. As historian Peter Wood notes in Black Majority, with respect to rice cultivation, particular know-how rather than lack of it was one factor which made black labor attractive to the English colonists. But then, as you say, as a result of their ingenuity, hard work, and savvy, these men and women died because life on a rice plantation was fraught with disease and death. And yes, they, in many cases, these men and women did not live past the age of 19. Yes. Um, you know, one of the quotes in the book was by a, a, a rice farmer who said, you know, he'd rather be shot at by the hour by the best Kentucky rifleman than spend an hour on a, sl- on a, a rice plantation in mm-hmm. summer. Uh, it was fraught with yellow fever, disease. It was hot. But one of the things that emerged from that, uh, that culture and that, in that, you know, that hellish landscape was that this, enslaved people developed their own culture. Uh, we know it now as the Gullah Geechee culture, where it, they had their own specific language that was uh, a combination of, of Caribbean patois and African language. And it still survives today. You know, when I go home, you might not understand how me and my family are talking to each other because, you know, like people say, we talk so Geechee. But, th- but that culture is America's first non-indigenous culture and it survived to this day and it allowed the enslaved to communicate with each other and to build communities and without the interference of their enslaved, their enslavers. And in, in, in Charleston had a particular, you know, we, we like to think about plantations as this overseer who was, you know, watching the enslaved people. But South Carolina enslaved people worked on what we call the task system where they were giving a ta- given a task. And once they finished, they were done for the day. So they were allowed to sell and uh, their own fruits and vegetables, raise their own fruits and vegetables. And so they had these communities, even though they were enslaved, they, that built churches and institutions and, you know, uh, taught each other to read at the peril of death. And it existed largely separate from the dominant European newly American culture. And just, Michael, this part of the book made me really kind of visualize all of this. So they were, quote, allowed to garden on their own, sew their own clothes, and then interact with others. So to think about Africans from the Caribbean colonies meeting Africans from different parts of West Africa, I mean, West Africans meeting people from different parts of West Africa, and to think about what that was like, 
And then as you say, they came up with this language. I, I mean, it's just, it's really incredible to think about. Yeah, I think so, too. And, and it's still again, it still survives to this day. And a lot of that culture survives to this day. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked to write an article about the plantation tourism industry in South Carolina. And there had just been this terrible storm. And some one of the tourists asked how this plantation that still survives to this day, how it survived this this terrible what they call a hundred year flood. And what the tour guide said was. Well, the levees and the dams that they used to flood the fields, the rice fields, and then let the water out, still they still work. They were built 300 years ago and still work. And so it showed me that these people were not just, you know, hardworking, strong people. They were engineers. They were people who had skills and, and, and brought science to America and, and things that didn't exist beforehand and that the European settlers couldn't have done alone. And as you write, rebellion became contagious in the culture of South Carolina's enslaved. Yes, yes, that's that was one thing that has always been present, even though, again, in the in our history that we learned for years that, you know, there were happy slaves and slaves. But but rebellion was a constant and and one of the things that i i wanted to show was that it wasn't just the slave rebellions that we normally hear about where people grab machetes but they resisted in many different ways sometimes they just slow down work sometimes they uh you know surreptitiously attack their masters sometimes they would form communities that showed people how to escape so that that form of resistance was evident in so many different ways other than violence and mutiny. And that's one of the things that was important to realize about South Carolina and about black people in general, that the, the, the notion and the, the desire for freedom has always been present since we've been here. Mm. Michael Harriet is author of the new book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. You can join us at 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Let's hear from Sam in San Francisco. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, I have what might be a strange question. I'm, I'm just wondering... These uh, people, these um, wealthy people who um, kidnapped these people and enslaved them, what was their mindset? Did they understand that these were humans? Did they, what were they thinking about who they were and what they were doing to them? Well, that is interesting because, you know, in, in most of the time when we learn history, we'll learn that they were products of their time. But since enslaved people came to America, there weren't just black people who desired freedom. There were a large quantity of white people who believed that slavery was wrong. So the abolition movement began as soon as black people came to America. Uh, you know, the Quakers the people who, you know, we see euphemized with, you know, the buckles, they refused to own slaves. Their, part, of their, part of their beliefs was that owning human beings was wrong. So, you know, it wasn't just a marginalized idea that enslaving human beings were, was wrong. It was, you know, it was pervasive. In fact, you know, we talk about, uh, we in the book, we talk about the the need to kind of tie slavery to Christianity. And there was a group of, of, of Europeans who created what they called the slave Bible that erased all of the parts that said slavery was wrong from the Bible. Right. So the, the, the people who enslaved people in America, they weren't under the belief that there was like this was normal or that, you know, everyone thought this was right. It was it was an idea that they had to overlook their biblical and religious and frankly, the idea of what America stood for to engage in this 
human trafficking project. Hmm. We have another. Thank you for that question, Sam. We have another question from Brendan. I've been wondering why the Tulsa race massacre was never mentioned in Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Well, so one of the things that we know, so the the Tulsa race race massacre is one of those things that like a lot of black people knew about before it became popular a couple of years ago because of the HBO series. But the thing about the Tulsa race massacre is that there were so many of those and it wasn't even the worst one or the most popular one. In fact, you know, the, even the, the name Black Wall Street, there were many Black Wall Streets. The Black Wall Street in Tulsa wasn't even the, the most popular Black Wall Street. Tuskegee, the Black Wall Street in, in Tulsa was named after the, the Black population and the Black downtown area of Tuskegee. Uh, the, the biggest Black Wall Street was in a district called Hayti in North, in Durham, North Carolina. So, so the Tulsa race massacre is probably now the most prominent example of those, but there are so many that it's almost impossible to know about all of them. Hmm. You know, that brings up another question. Given all the research that you have done, what has this experience or, or has it changed your views about why white people and white history is so threatened by black success. I think I don't think it's changed my views. I think it is is informed them. And and what I mean by that is that what America is and what we believe America is is based on a mythology, right? And to buy into that mythology means that you have to believe certain things. You have to believe that the founding fathers believed in the idea of freedom and that all men were created equal. And it's hard to teach that and to perpetuate that myth and tell the truth. Quite frankly, it's hard to get people to believe that this was a country founded on certain ideals and to say all of those ideals were never extended to a certain group of people in this country. Now, if you can comport those two, the only logical way to comport those two is to understand that those people who withheld the rights to humanity from black people believed that white people were supreme, which, again, goes back to the thing of dismantling that myth. So if you believe, if you know the truth, then you'd have to understand that part of the foundation of America is built on white supremacy. That's the only way you can logically understand why this group of people were treated this way and why they didn't have access to all of the rights and the privileges and the constitutional things that were afforded to everyone else. Hmm. I wish we had more time because the the stories you tell about slave revolts are just so interesting. And I think we need to just bring these names up and these stories up as as much as possible. I'll bring up one that I found really interesting, and then maybe you can talk about your favorite. Again, this was a visual that really, really stuck with me. Um, Harriet Jacobs was born a slave in 1813 on a legal technicality. According to the ancient Virginian principle of partus sequitur ventrum, a child born to a slave was also a slave. Harriet's grandmother, Molly, had been freed by her owner, but was later kidnapped and re-enslaved. Because of this, Harriet's mom was doomed for a life of slavery, as were Harriet and her brother, John. Can you tell us more about Harriet Jacobs and ultimately what happened to her? Well, Harriet Jacobs, again, uh, she was was born a slave. Uh, she had children and they were doomed to slavery. And so Harriet Jacobs couldn't bear the thought of her children uh, being, you know, enslaved. So Harriet Jacobs, once she ran away and she hid in an attic for years and 
on the plantation where she was enslaved just to make sure that her children were okay. And it's one of those uh, examples of the conundrum of freedom, right? Are you free if you can't live freely? But she would rather be free and make her own determination of how her freedom, how her freedom was organized then to be subject to the idea of slavery. I think there's so many examples of this in the book and throughout history that, you know, she is just one of the people whose story is fascinating and it is an example of the brutality of slavery and the conundrum of how do you get free? Well, this is what really got me. Harriet was able to watch her children grow up. And if you're wondering how she did that, if she was a runaway, well, this is what you write, Michael. Harriet was living right underneath her former master's nose. During the day, she'd hide in a nearby swamp. At night, she hid out in Molly's attic, never revealing her presence to her kids. The attic had no light and at its highest point was three feet tall. Harriet managed to drill a hole in the cramped crawl space so she could read the Bible and watch her children. And she lived that way for seven years? Yes, and and what's remarkable about that is, again, when I think about Harriet, I wonder how brutal slavery had to be Mm. to say, I'd rather do this than be a slave. That's amazing. And then in January 1861, uh, incidents of in the life of a slave girl was released by Harriet, and she became an abolitionist icon. Yes, and, and, and she was one of the many people who were able to tell their stories and, and, and let America know and, and crusade against the evils of slavery. Again, this, you know, the people who were engaged in this human trafficking project, they weren't products of their time. It was impossible to enslave people in America and not know that a lot of your fellow countrymen thought that you were engaged in an evil enterprise. And I think this is what makes the banning of books and the whitewashing of history ultimately very sad. Because if you think about a young black girl learning about slavery, and then you think about that young black girl learning about Harriet and the fact that she wrote a book and, you know, how she loved her children, what she did to watch her children. I mean, that is empowering for a young black, young kids in general. I think that's what makes all of this just so deeply. It's, it's horrific, but it's also sad on many levels. Right. I think I think what you said is exactly correct. One of the things that I always talk about is that. When you think about the brutality of of slavery and, you know, there are people who say that slavery existed since the beginning of time. But what we're talking about is race based, constitutionally enforced human trafficking that reduced human beings to chattel. When you think about that and how black people overcame it and how that black people overcame there is nothing that has ever been done to a human being that hadn't been done in mass to black people and that we survived and built institutions and communities and families and lives and generations of people that is empowering that is the greatest story that has ever been told and we don't have to whitewash it to make america seem like a great place because we have the greatest story that has ever been told right there in our true history mm. oh, so true well, michael what are you what are you hoping comes of this book i i just i hope that young people especially are able to read this that it's taught in classrooms I hope it gives people the understanding that history and American history, first of all, it is complex and that it doesn't have to be whitewashed because the truth is complex and human beings are complex and building a nation is complex. But there is nothing that you can know that can undo the truth. And and that to me, that is the point of this book is that like, 
don't whitewash the past because you can't erase it. It will always survive. And because we are the carriers of that legacy. What role do you see yourself playing given that this is an election year? And, you know, I've, I've got to mention this since South Carolina plays such a crucial role in your book. Uh, the former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who's running for president, saying, I know America has never been a racist country. I mean, she needs to read your book, first of all. But what I mean, it's just it's it's so insulting, these things that these people say. But what role are you planning to play you know, this year, given that it's an election year, given the media coverage, all of the ridiculous things that we're hearing from these politicians. Well, as a journalist, I've covered, you know, politics and presidential elections for years. And that is partly how I became known for talking about history, because one of my beliefs is that history is not a thing that did happen. It is a thing that is happening happening and the only way that we can understand the present is by knowing the past and so i hope this book informs people that the stuff that we're seeing now right these anti-history laws these anti-truth laws it is part of a long legacy and that we can resist and we can defeat it because we've done it before and that we we can't think of what is happening now as this spontaneously combusting thing that just popped out of nowhere. We have to look at it in the long arc of history to know how we can overcome it. Michael Harriet is the author of Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America. He's also a columnist for The Guardian and The Grio. You can learn more about Michael's work at yourcallradio.org. Michael, congratulations on this fantastic book, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks to Savannah Harriman-Pote for producing today's show, and thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 